Welcome back to the New Books Network's African American Studies channel. I am your host, Adam McNeil, PhD student in the Department of History at the University of Delaware. Today, we're discussing the phenomenal book published by the University Press of Florida entitled Democracy Abroad, Lynching at Home, Racial Violence in Florida, with its author, Associate Professor of History and Coordinator of the African American Studies Department at Valdosta State University, Dr. Tamika Bradley Hobbs. Hello there, Dr. Hobbs. How are you doing today? I'm fantastic, Adam. Good to be with you. Absolutely. And so, uh, you know, we, we, we had mentioned this before, you know, uh, we, we share a particular uh, um, affiliation, shall we say. Um, so, you know, you're, you're, you're a fellow Rattler. Um, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Orange and green all day day and not the Miami one. We, we, we came a little before y'all. So, uh, (laughs) oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, um, thank you for, for coming on the program today. We're, uh, we're definitely very happy to, to have you on the program, um, to talk about democracy abroad, lynching at home, racial violence in Florida. Um, and before we go into the text, can you give us a bit of a a Genesis story? You know, we're recording this on Sunday. Uh, could, could you give us a bit of a Genesis story of how this project came to be and some of, uh, uh, some of the things that happened with, within your education that brought you to uh, Democracy Abroad Lynching at Home? Uh, sure. And actually, we can pick up where we just left off with the story of Florida uh, A&M University. It was while I was there. I think I must have been a sophomore taking a class with uh, Dr. Theodore Hemingway, who was one of the prolific professors that we had there at the time. And uh, I was taking class with him and we were discussing Reconstruction and what happened after Reconstruction. And he said to me, we were talking about lynching, uh, but he said to me, I bet you don't know that they lynched a boy in Live Oak. Uh, Live Oak, Florida is my hometown uh, since Suwannee County. And at the moment in his class, when he mentioned that, I was really caught off guard. I'd grown up in this place. Um, and in all the conversations I'd had with my elders, whether at church or at home, I'd never heard anything quite like this um, be mentioned. So you can imagine it's one thing to learn about the phenomena of lynching and be horrified by it, but then to recognize that someone had been lynched in your hometown. So the, the next time I went home, I remembered and I asked my, my grandfather at the time, um, he's since passed away, about uh, this lynching, the lynching of Willie James Howard. And uh, and he remembered it. And, and it was a really somber recollection for him. And I'd never really seen my grandfather in that mood before. Something that was uh, clearly a bad memory. Uh, he went on to share with me that it was very dangerous to be an African-American man or uh, boy. He would have been around the same age as Willie James Howard But that at that point in his life, if he encountered a white woman or a white girl while he was walking the streets of of Live Oak, that he would turn around and go home. Because if there was any insinuation that anything had been done on his part to make that white woman or white girl uncomfortable, it would have been uh, very dangerous for him. So uh, all of that to say was because of a conversation in my class at Florida A&M, I went home and um, learned a very personal story from my grandfather. We didn't very often talk about what his life had been like under segregation, but that gave me a little bit of a window 
Dr. Hemingway was interested uh, in the Willie James Howard story. Willie James Howard was uh, 15 years old when he was lynched in 1944. Uh, he was kidnapped from his mother at gunpoint. Uh, his father was also kidnapped by three white men. One of the white men um, who was the father of the girl that a, a, white, a note had been written to that Willie James Howard had, had written her. Uh, he was a former state elected official but he forced Willie James Howard in front of his father to jump to his death uh, on the banks of the Swanee River uh, where he drowned. And so um, that was a story. Dr. Hemingway was interested in telling it. And so he began to send me back and ask me to interview elders in the community about the incident. So little did I know I was actually getting some early training as an oral historian uh, and collecting these stories uh, for him. Fast forward a few years, by the time I finished my undergraduate degree and decided that I'm going to pursue a history degree at Florida State University uh, and thinking about what I wanted to write about, I I decided that I wanted to write about these lynchings. And so um, that's how I I got along this path. And, you know, you, you talk about the importance of, uh, of professors and, and, and teachers at, at the more uh, ground level, um, which is great because it's always good to hear about how people um, realize kind of where they want to uh, stake their, their academic claim. Um, and your territory is definitely within the realm of, uh, of race uh, racialized violence and and also the the memory of such violence as well um and and also one of the parts that really and we talked about this a bit offline too one of the areas that really made me really think about wanting to get you on the program too was not only the lynching part and being in florida where (laughs) if you talk to people casually and they think about florida a lot of times they think about the florida exceptionalism um and, and and in the sense of florida maybe geographically in the south right as the southernmost portion of the american south but florida's not florida's not alabama florida's not south carolina it's not Mississippi. It's not, you know, the places where you think of where, you know, I would say the majority of Americans, maybe white Americans, but the majority of Americans thinking, hold on, Florida didn't have any slavery. It didn't have any lynchings, but specifically, you know, not only that part, but the time frame at which you're talking. Could you speak about why you um, uh, wanted to center on um, and how you came to the realization of the lynchings that happened within the World War II era? Because I thought that was really profound. And it's why uh, one of the important reasons why I, I wanted to greenlight your book to, to come on the program. Well, I think you're exactly right when you when you speak about the perception of Florida as somehow being exceptional among southern states. And it's a very modernist interpretation uh, for, you know, since World War II, the state's elected leaders have worked to promote Florida as a tourist destination, as a vacation destination. We are definitely famous for the orange juice and for Disney and for our beaches. And that's a very polished image of Florida. But the truth about Florida is that Florida is as Southern as any other Southern state and its habits and its cultures. Uh, And especially when we talk about race relations, I always like to remind my students that Florida was the third of the Confederate states to to remove itself from the U.S. 
uh, uh, constitution uh, at the time of the of the Civil War. Uh, and moving forward, when we talk about racial violence, I think for most people, they do think of Mississippi first. They do think of Alabama first. But uh, since uh, people who have been doing uh, cleometrics on history uh, have looked at lynching, what they've determined, and this is held true, is that if you look at lynching per capita, uh, which really translate to you know, translates to your likelihood of being lynched as a as a person of color. Florida had the highest rate in the nation, and by translation, you know, in the South, and that is really shocking uh, for a lot of people. Black people living in Florida had the highest likelihood of being lynched of any black people in the nation. It is not what we understand about the state of Florida. It's not the way that we see the state of Florida. So if we, if we take that point, then what does it mean for Black life in that state, in the state uh, during that period? It means that Black people existed with a real threat of violence um, daily uh, that was near them, next to them, uh, was very real, very palpable. Uh, and there have been varying studies that have tried to understand why lynching, why the frequency. But I think in Florida, when you look at the agricultural nature of its economy, from tobacco in the north to the orange groves and celery groves and the beans and strawberries, what have you, further south, um, it's it's very clear that so much of the state's economy is dependent on not just the agricultural sector, but within the agricultural sector that they're dependent upon an abundance of cheap black labor. And one of the ways that you maintain that, and it's, you know, many, many legs to the stool, but one of the most effective ones, I think whites found over the generations is terrorism of black people to keep them in their place. And so I'm, I'm really glad that you bring that up. It's something when I have a chance to speak to audiences that I always bring up because it, it, we need to correct that uh, in our liter- literature and in our popular understanding. Secondly, um, within the field of history, what you often find, I often find, is that Florida's stories, because of the same attitude, tend to be overlooked. Uh, and then within the stories that are told about Florida, I, I feel that very often the stories of the rural people are left out. And being from a rural place, it was very important for me to uh, to uh, do something to address that. There are uh, real stories that needed to, need to be told that help us to understand the, the complete experience of all Black people uh, in the state, in the South. And so uh, rural stories, rural places in Florida do have a role in that. Uh, in terms of the time period, the time period... Uh, was really just because as I dug in more with the story of Willie James Howard, I found these other series of lynchings that took place in the same decade. Um, the, the first one of the decade was in 1941 in Quincy, which is in Gadsden County. It was the murder of Arthur Williams, who was accused of robbery and attempted rape. Then there in 1943 over in Jackson County, um, which is interesting because Jackson County was also the site of the 1934 Claude Neal mass lynching, spectacle lynching. But uh, fast forward to 1943 and Sellis Harrison uh, was killed. He was accused of murdering a white man. Uh, 1944 was Willie James Howard in Swanee County. And then in 1945, Jesse James Payne, a sharecropper, was was lynched in Madison County. And so to have those uh, incidents be in proximity 
uh, the way that they were uh, to have something like the uh, Hay lynching in 1945 be one of the few recording lynchings, recorded lynchings that year. Um, and all of the wonderful records that I was able to obtain through the NAACP's papers, uh, they, of course, are tracking and recording. Um, and, you know, as people are letting them know uh, about these these extra legal, extra legal murder incidents. Uh, so I found that to be a very rich source. And so when I got ready to to write, yeah, it just seems like this was a, a good coupling of incidents. And more importantly, I think the juxtaposition about what's happening with the United States internationally, the fight, the, the fight that we are fighting in World War II, this war against Hitler, this war against Nazis, uh, and, and what we understand about their views around Aryan supremacy and what we know now was going on with, with uh, Jewish people in Europe during this period of time under this uh, Nazi regime. It, it begs the question for America, uh, how was it that we understand so clearly during this period that what Hitler represents in his Aryan supremacy is, is so terrible, but yet can still fail to understand that these t- same types of things are taking place in the American South when we talk about the marginalization, the segregation, the exclusion, and terrorism of, of, of African Americans. And so that, for me which is vastly interesting. And with that particular frame for, for the story, um, I, you know, I think it's a good time for us to, to really go into uh, some of the actual scenes because one of the parts that I thought was also important about your book was, was how you show you know, the, the frame really of not only the world war but also looking at how the governors and how the you know the the legislators the sheriffs everybody is indicted within you know the the deaths uh, of the, of these african american uh of folks right there you know it's not only the people who 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 physically kill these folks but it's also the quote unquote legal, uh, 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 the 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 folks in the quote unquote justice system who are supposed to take care of them that didn't. I think you hit on one really core point. I teach a class uh, what I did when I was at Florida Memorial University. I developed it there because uh, while we didn't have a history major, we had uh, an inordinate amount of criminal justice majors in my department. And I thought that, you know, getting creative, that there was a nexus here. And so the course that I taught looked at the history of race and the legal code and the history of race and law enforcement. And when we came to our discussions around lynching, what I really emphasized for my students is that when we were, when we were looking at what was happening and, and when we define it as extra legal murder, uh, it's taking place outside of the scope of law, that when someone is murdered, there's supposed to be an investigation, there's supposed to be an arrest, there's supposed to be prosecution, there's supposed to be a trial um, by a fair jury with a fair judge, um, there's a sentencing, there's appeal, there's this entire process that is laid out under the guides of, guise of our laws, and we pride ourselves on being a, a, a law of nation, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, a law, a, a nation of laws. 
But when you look at extra legal murder, particularly against African-Americans in the South, what you see and what I teach my students is that it is a complete and utter failure at nearly every level of the criminal justice system. And then you have to ask yourself why. Why in these particular incidents are they allowed to take place? Why is it that no one bats an eye? Why is it that the sheriff doesn't come investigate? Why doesn't why isn't there arrest of the perpetrators? Even if there happens to be arrest of the perpetrators, why is it that all white jurors would let let these people go? It all serves as a function of, of white supremacy in and in an exempt and in very keen example of white supremacy within an institutional uh, setting. Uh, and in this case, we're talking about the police forces. We're talking about the courthouse. Um, it is, it's just what the society at the time was willing to allow. And, and that's a key point that I think people need to take away. A part of my work as a historian, I think, is informing current debates around um, you know, these same issues. And, and one of the things that we can draw a line through that's fairly consistent is that when members of a community are willing to allow any group of people to be marginalized, uh, despite what we may have on the law or on the record, our systems fall. Our, our laws are only as good as the society which creates them and enforces them. And when you look at race, if you are trying to judge how far along we've come on the issue of race, this is one of the areas where you can see some consistency. Because while we're talking about in the late 19th and early 20th century, the unanswered murders of black people and we still are now in the in the early 21st century grappling with across the nation um, the shooting of unarmed black men what I see in my view as a historian who looks at patterns is that we still have a society that does not value black life because if it really was this valuation of Black life, there would be absolute outrage at the conditions under which many of these police shootings, and, and, and that's what I'm referencing here, the shooting, the shooting of unarmed African-Americans by uh, state-supported entities. And, and that's where I see the, the line that can be drawn. And, and it's an it's unfortunate situation. It's troubling um, I think that, unfortunately, with the person that we have as executive of this nation, uh, he's kind of given um, voice to and encouragement of some of the worst parts of uh, character in, in our nation, of us citizens. And when that happens, again, as a student of history, it has real consequences for people of color in terms of terrorism and in terms of violence. And to also add to um, your 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 last statement too, um, to bring things into context to right now and kind of commemorative spaces, right? So, the previous week, I think it was la- uh, this last Friday, was the um, aniv- was the unfortunate anniversary of the death of Sandra Bland um, in, in police custody, mm-hmm. and um, I guess it was a prayer view. Um, uh, Prairie View, uh, uh, Texas, and you know the the she was a graduate of uh, Prairie right, View right. She was University, a you know about yeah. to begin a new job at Prairie View. You know, a former graduate of Prairie View A and M. Um, 
And then also, you know, you have that. You also have, you know, my birthday is actually July 30th, and that's actually coinciding with the beginning of the documentary series uh, by Jay-Z on the um, on the uh, Trayvon Martin story. And um, and so that is, you know, by the time this interview is actually published, we'll be very much near that actual date, which is a Monday. Um, so I guess in about a, a, a two Mondays, maybe. And so um, and then also to bring it to a more, pop, I guess, kind of pop culture moment, too. Um, you know, I had recently seen last week the purge, um, the first purge, actually. Mm-hmm. And so um, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Um, there's a particular scene where you actually have white supremacists going into a church and effectively offing an entire congregation who is trying to wait out the purge in there. And as people, right, who who know particular histories, right, that moment sitting in that theater in Cherokee, North Carolina, with effectively all white people um, and, and so, some, some Cherokee natives in there as well, I was like, wow. And so I was having a, a, a call and response moment in that film saying, to let y'all know, yo, that's like uh, that boy Dylan Roof, you know, the, the terrorist uh, white supremacist Dylan Roof. Like, that's exactly what, you know, I don't necessarily know if the writers and the director uh, 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 saw that as like a continuum, uh, but I know my black behind did. And so um, to bring all those three into um, into the pot here and stir it up right quick, that's... um. That's why I think, you know, people have to understand, you know, the the, the terrorism and, and using particular words is very important because you can't just get off thinking that this didn't happen. I hear too many people saying that I didn't know, blah, 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 blah. And it's not to say that they are necessarily the problem um, in, in all the way of being ignorant of this particular history because, hey, we all come, you know, to these particular stories in our own uh, uh, varying ways. But there comes a point where your ignorance cannot be your the, the it, your ignorance cannot be what you always go to um, a, a, as a justification, shall we say. Um, and so that's why I've done my best to, you know, highlight stories from Florida, because I think people have a particular thought that slavery didn't happen in Florida, lynching didn't happen in Florida, that I'm like, hold up, <laughs> do, do we not grow up in the same state, in the same community? Are you saying that stuff ain't happened? Well, I think like, it's, um, it's, there's a lot of language. People who uh, work in the areas of anti-racist education um, understand this. They understand that having what Robert Tataki calls master narrative of American history that is sanitized, that is devoid of the suffering of people of color, non-white people, that instead highlights all of the wonderful positive things, um, quotes, and that's air quotes there, about Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. um, the United States, um, you know, this idea of its exceptionalism, of manifest destiny, uh, of us, you know, having a particular mantle in the world that things are progressing and moving in a certain direction. And that is, uh, you know, what I mentioned earlier about us being a nation of laws, this idea of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Um, it's, it's, it sounds really good, but it exists only for 
a, a, a certain group of people in this country. And it is a function of white privilege to only have that as your guiding understanding of this nation's history. It's much more complicated and much more messy, much more disruptive to your, you know, shiny narrative to bring in the stories of the genocide of Native Americans, to bring in the stories of the enslavement of African peoples here, to bring in the story of lynching, of Jim Crow. And so, um, you know, I've, I've found some work in that space. I've been doing work for the last two years with the South Florida People of Color, which is a nonprofit dedicated to eradicating racism. And I found a role for myself as a historian and as an educator to help to close the gap around what people understand around Black history. And and, and our audience is mixed, but it is primarily white people. And to, you know, to, with the goal in mind that we can't have in-depth conversations about the reality that we're sharing right now if we don't have a common understanding of our past. And what I find more often than not is that because of white privilege, as a function of white privilege, white people do not have a clear and broad understanding of all of African-American history, not only the successes of which there are many in spite of the conditions under which they live, but as well as the the suffering um, and the horror and the terror like what I write about. And so it's, um, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And as a historian, it's very frustrating sometimes to listen uh, to the conversations because I know at the root of a lot of this ignorance in the public square is a lack of understanding. And that lack of understanding is what gets brought into classrooms uh, with you as a as a history professor um, and, and at a state um, at a at a state uh, college or state university rather. Um, you know, you you have so many different people. It's like I work with the National Park Service, um, and so you have people coming in from all over the country and all over the world with particular narratives of what they think um, the particular places that that I'm working at and they're coming to uh, of what those sisters actually are, and you know, to, just to try to bring them um, uh, the truth or at least a truth. Um, I don't hold all the keys to the truth, uh, but I like to say I have. Um, I do have a, a, a key into something um, that I think is truthful, and you do as well. And so um, with that as well, um, one of the, you know, one of, I would say that your first two chapters, um, when you talk about um, the, the lynchings of uh, Arthur C. Williams in Gadsden County um, in the um, – in the chapter Lynch Twice, and the second one, A Degree of Restraint, the Trials of, uh, was it Selos uh, Harrison? Um, I pronounce it Selos. Oh, Selos, okay. Uh, rather, uh, Selos uh, Harrison from 1940 to 1943, and for Arthur Williams, 1941. Th- um, I thought those two chapters were pff, harrowing. Oh, my gosh. You know, and, and I mentioned to you offline that I had read your your book around the same time that I got lost on on a mountain in, in North Carolina and I I ain't even going front I, I was like Lord God please don't let me be that I I I, 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 I gotta interview people my mama got to see her boy again um 
And so um, your first two chapters were definitely harrowing. And would you be able to talk a bit about the particular uh, nature of of what happened with Arthur Williams um, um, and, and the, the the surrounding histories of that as well in Gaston County? Sure. Um, Gaston County was a very interesting place. It um, was really core to the quote unquote, black belt region of northern Florida during the antebellum period where tobacco cultivation was uh, very important, where there were large numbers of enslaved African-Americans that made up the population, uh, as was true with Leon County and Jefferson County. Uh, But what you see in in Gaston County is as even as freedom comes, even through the period of emancipation and into Jim Crow, is, is that you see dynamics that exist in that community that are very much similar to the period of of enslavement. And so race relations are not very progressive. Um, White dominance is still the role, the role, the rule. Uh, When we talk about black people, um, their labor is still uh, being utilized mainly in tobacco crops and other, other agricultural crops. And, and so it's a very unique place, even though um, today it remains the fact that Gaston is the largest uh, black county in the entire state of Florida. But when I'm writing about Arthur Williams, the story with Arthur Williams is that he was uh, caught and accused of robbery and attempted rape of a, a 12-year-old white girl. Um, He was placed in a jail that was not guarded very securely. He was kidnapped from that jail, given no surprise of the sexual allegation that was against him. One would think that by the 1940s that there would be enough of these would have taken place that it should have been standard procedure for law enforcement to provide additional security. But that was not the case. Arthur Williams was kidnapped from the jail. He was taken to a nearby railroad station strung up, hung by the neck, um, and his assailants shot at him, shot at him, wounded him as they were leaving. But one of those bullets must have grazed the rope from which he was hand, uh, hanging because he fell to the ground, uh, was later rescued, taken back to his family's home and what we call the seaboard's quarters. It was, uh, again, plantation language we're used to calling slave housing quarters, but they were still being used in Quincy at that point in time, but he was taken back to his family. They wanted to get medical care for him. Um, And because of segregation at the time, that meant a trip to Tallahassee to the hospital on the campus of Florida Memorial, I'm sorry, Florida A&M College. But he asked his family not to involve the authorities because he uh, insinuated that the sheriff had been involved on the first attempt on his life. And so um, they hit him. They even went as far as to participate in a search party in order to throw the authorities off. But eventually his wounds were discovered to be so critical that they knew if he was going to survive, he needed to get hospital treatment. So they told the sheriff, they told the doctor, they were making arrangements to have him transported to Tallahassee. But it was along this route that only a few people knew about that the Hearst that was carrying him, Hearst doubling as an ambulance, uh, that it was stopped and he was taken from it and and lynched again. So um, the title of that chapter, Lynched Twice, uh, is true to the fact uh, this mob was very 
persistent, and I shouldn't say mob, because um, it's one of the points that I make in this point, this the book about the changing nature of lynching. I think after 1934, with the Claude Neal incident and it being such a large event and bringing such scandal and shame uh, to the community uh, of Mariana, that what you see is that moving forward, um, and what I find in the lynchings that I write about in Florida, that the perpetrators are much more careful, that they are operating under the cover of darkness, they're operating in secret, there are just a few uh, numbers of the parties, the lynching parties that are taking, uh, participating. And I, I argue that what you see here is some acknowledgement by these white Southerners that they're not going to be able to operate in the same way that they did in the past, that they needed to be more cautious. And um, and so that's what you have in, in this incident. Um, but it ties into what I just mentioned, Mariana, you asked about the uh, second chapter. And actually, I, I pair the uh, second chapter and the third chapter. Those were the ones where I was writing uh-huh. about Celis Harrison. In my dissertation, it was actually one chapter. But when I was working on the manuscript, okay. I um, made another visit to uh, Mariana and thought about the context of the story. The second, the third chapter, the second one that tells the concluding part of what happened to Celis Harrison is called The Failure of Forbearance. Because what I bear out uh, and I'm able to tease out in, in Mariana is that although there is a desire to resort to the usual way of dealing with uh, an African-American who's violated a law, and in this case, the killing of a white man, they understand that they don't want to have uh, international and national attention. And so they try to go about the process of a legal lynching. Um, and again, uh, the contrast here is between extra legal, completely outside of the system, as opposed to a legal lynching, which has all of the, <laughs> it looks like a trial, it smells like justice, but in fact, everyone is conspiring to have uh, a specific outcome. And in this case, that desired outcome was the execution of Celis Harrison. And it's but for the intervention of Benjamin Franklin Barnes. And what took me back to Mariana was that I met his daughter and um, she was willing to share more information about her father and uh, his law practice. He was a, a white attorney who uh, not only you know defended Celis Harrison as a matter of cause, but vigorously sought to defend him. And, and one of the points that he was able to successfully argue in front of the Florida Supreme Court is that uh, Celis Harrison's confession had been forcefully obtained, that he had been intentionally put into a desperate state. He was told that he was being pursued by a white mob and and understand that this is in the weeks after the lynching of Arthur Williams in 1941. And so he was left with a very clear impression in his mind that he was going to be next, that there was a mob that wanted to, to lynch him. But his jailers told him that he, he would only confess to the crime that it would save his life. And so Barnes uh, was able to make that argument successfully um, a couple, and had a couple of appeals to the uh, Florida Supreme Court. 
And it was only then when the uh, whites involved in, in Mariana understood that they would not be able to achieve their end of a legal lynching that they resort to what they had known before, which is an extra legal execution. They kidnap uh, Sellis Harrison from the downtown city jail, drive him around town and uh, bludgeon him to death in the same way that Johnny Mayo, the white victim, had been killed. But it's absolutely a fascinating study in how white communities are struggling with their past practices, but in a modern era that I, I argue is colored by America's participation in World War II. And also with that, too, um, when you think about how lynching is not only about the person that or and or people that are being lynched, but also those folks who are the family members, who are the relatives, who share the same color, maybe economic status, right? And in the sense that you're not only trying to kill the person, you're trying to kill any spirit that is in the community that that lynch person came from. And, and so when we talk about cultural memory, you know, this is, you know, are, are the lynchings, because I, I know that um, you, you, you did a, you know, you're trained as an oral historian and you definitely um, use that uh, to, to, to make this story even better in the sense of letting us know contemporary, uh, contemporarily, like what's, you know, uh, what's going on in these particular communities. And with that, um, what are, what are the memories of, of folks who are, um, who, who didn't leave, right? Because, uh, you have some of the stories of some of the family members of the, of the lynched, uh, folks who just left the community, some stayed, uh, maybe extended family members, but what is the memory like in 2000, or I guess in the 21st century, because, you know, this is a, a story that uh, began a, a little bit ago for you to write, um, but w- what is the memory like in the particular communities um, that, that you just spoke of uh, about the lynchings? Well, they, they vary, and um, I'm glad you brought up the oral history because I, I think that's something that differentiates my study from a lot of other studies. I was very intentional on trying to capture the voices of people in the community, and it was not always uh, people who knew the victims. I think I only had one person that I talked to who actually uh, knew the victims that I was writing about, but it was about historical memory and community memory and how these stories had been passed down from generation to generation and how the black community had made meaning of these incidents in, in their own culture. And that was really fascinating uh, for me. And, and, and you also made a very important point about the damage that a lynching did, not just to the individual who was murdered, but to the entire family. I, my epilogue actually deals with this because I was very, I was struck by the women and the story that I wrote. Um, I'll talk a little bit about a woman named Ann Flipper. That's a pseudonym, um, but she was the sister of Arthur Williams, who was killed in 1941 in, in 
Quincy. She was nine years old at the time that he died, but I was able to speak to her in 1998. And it was through her that she gave me all of this detail that was no, nowhere a part of the court record, nowhere a part of any press uh, recording, um, whether that was white press or black press. Uh, she was the one who told me uh, the fact that he escaped and had um, implemented or uh, said that the sheriff was involved. She was the one who told me how the, the family hid him in order to try to protect his life. Um, but it was also what she shared in talking about the aftermath uh, for her family, that her mother refused to live in a community that would do this to her son. And she knew that there was no justice uh, for her and for her, her deceased son. And so the family tried to leave together, but the father um, did not like where they ended up. Um, Hattie Williams, the mother of Arthur Williams, had a sister in East St. Louis and went away. And so that was the original plan is that they would go and live with her. But there wasn't enough money. And even when they eventually did make it out, uh, her father did not like the environment and wanted to go back to Quincy. And so according to Ann Flipper, her family never lived together uh, again. She she lived with her mother in East St. Louis and, and other cities. I think they relocated a few times. When I caught up with her, she was in uh, Indian Springs, Nevada. Um, but it destroyed her family. Uh, she talked about Arthur being her favorite brother. Uh, she talked about the fact that he had not been living in Quincy the whole time, that he too had gone north and, and was coming back uh, for a visit when all of this took place. She never lived with her father and her brothers again. And so in this one instance, you see the, the, real, the real damage that was done to this family. It was never the same. And we can't even talk about the trauma. Uh, Anne talked about the fact that her mother uh, was wracked with grief uh, and traumatized by what happened to her child. She, too, carried the burden of, of hatred for whites um, in, the, in the years that, that followed. There's a similar story regarding Jesse James Payne uh, and the aftermath of his death. Uh, his wife and mother, who had been dependent on him as well as his infant daughter, were left destitute and dependent on relatives. Uh, there was never any justice for them. They needed economic support. Their uh, father, uh, husband, son had left crops in the ground that were of value. They were never able to recoup that money. So, um, and they too, they ended up fleeing the community of Madison and that family dispersed uh, all around the nation. As a matter of fact, uh, they contacted me around the time that I was working on the manuscript and there were, there was a branch of this family that was in Detroit that had really not connected with the branch of the family that was in Sanford, Florida. And they were just beginning almost 50, 60 years later to reunite and to connect pieces of their story. But in one of the pieces that was remained missing was what happened to their, uh, I guess what would have been their baby cousin. No one knows what happens to Jesse James wife, Jesse James Payne's wife or their infant daughter. Uh, so, so the tragedy is, is, really compounded when you look at it in that way. Uh, other communities, I, I think about... As well, it, you know, and, and I remember 
in in my master's program at Simmons College up in Boston, um, I did a uh, I conducted a project with some of my classmates on the Great Migration um, in uh, in our uh, collective memory course, and I remember thinking about the Great Migration when we decided on the topic and how especially because it was going on during the 2016 presidential election as well in the fall of 16, that that use of the word great, (laughs) I'm not going to say it should always, you know, denote a positive um, as, but the thing is (laughs) the great migration was a refugee crisis, right? The, the lynchings, right? You talk about, you know, it's Sunday, so you know, cite Black Women Sunday. You got to cite Ida B. Wells. What did she do as, you know, an anti, the first, you know, anti-lynching activist, right? Internationalist, um, because what she tried to do was shame America, to shame America that how dare you talk about democracy? How dare you talk about civility? How dare you talk about? you know, the gentility of the Southern white person or the American white person in general. And yet you see all these, these statistics of these black people being murdered for the thought of even coming across white women. And that in many ways was not even the case of the majority of the lynchings that went on. Um, a lot of times it was the economic piece and, and keeping folks down. And so um, I bring that up because when I think about... Or just the simple fact of, of maintaining uh, racial etiquette. I mean, so many of these lynchings were, you know, for making eye contact with a white woman, for failing to step off a sidewalk. It could be anything. And especially in light of what happened this past week, um, where the, I guess it's the U.S. Department of Justice is reopening for how many different times the, the case of Emmett Till. Right, which happened mm-hmm. uh, a decade after um, the the lynchings that you spoke of that you wrote about in your book, and so to me, when I think about you know the Great Migration and really the refugee crisis, what I have to always go back to is the fact that we dubbed this the Great Migration, but this is one of the other cases in American history where the demographics of communities change in historical time frames overnight where millions of people f- flee not leave they flee racial oppression economic political disenfranchisement to quote to try to go to b- places that are perceived to be better just to find out oh, it ain't necessarily all that much better depending on uh depending on the context and, and the places that you go but with the stories of the folks, the, the family members that have to leave these communities and some of them don't reattach to the family that they left. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was one of the one of the uh, uh, sadder portions of the text on top of the, uh, the obvious nature of lynching in the text. But how families and the, the anger, the 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 the, the family togetherness that was lost so when people talk about you know oh my gosh black families are you know they're 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 never they're they're not together they're you know they're disparate they're this and this but it's like was there a hand that was right kind of stirring that to make that happen was there not a force in that way as well um 
And so that's why books like yours are so important and why I'm so glad that as an oral historian, you you put your training to use in this story so that it's not only the stories of of what happened in 1941, in 1944, 1945, 1943, but in the 1980s, the 1990s, the 2000s, what's going on today so that we can recover those stories so that when the family members do pass, their stories of what happened and how it's impacted them does not go away with them. Very important. Um, and I think you make a lot of good points there. And, uh, and that's why I, I don't know if you recall, but in the, in the days after nine 11, back in 2001, uh, Cornell West got in a lot of mm-hmm. trouble because he said that America had been niggerized is the word he used and everybody went crazy. And mm-hmm. the point that Cornell West was trying to make is to center the experience of black people with terrorism. What he was really speaking to is the fact that to be black in America is to know terrorism as a regular part of your existence. And now the nation, because of these Islamic terrorists, was experiencing it as a whole. Incidents of lynching were not just about the victim. They were very public. Uh, They were um, carried out in such a way to have an impact on the broader community. It was meant to send a message that if you stepped out of line, that this too could happen to you. And so we have to keep our finger on that. Um, And and when we talk about, again, Florida's frequency uh, that Black people hear, that we have, the state have the highest uh, incidence, the highest frequency of lynching out of any Southern state, I think it just goes back to the statement that I made earlier, which is Blacks in Florida lived under a great threat of being lynched. Um, And how people make meaning, I think, is uh, uh, the memory stories. uh, Bruce Baker, writing about North Carolina, has done some really amazing work. I love uh, Cheryl and Eiffel's work on the courthouse lawn, um, because these things take on a life of themselves. uh, themselves, And that's what I found in, in many of the communities. Sometimes it was conflation of uh, lynching incidents in Quincy. There had been lynching that had taken place in the 30s where the victim had been, uh, his body had been dragged behind a car around the courthouse square in downtown Quincy. And I found when I went to interview people that many people were in uh, confusing the lynching of Arthur Williams with uh, the lynching of, um, I think his name was uh, Bud Larkins. And so you, you have to be savvy about it, but it all, you know, was consistent in terms of the message. It was a cautionary tale about the lengths to which white people would go to brutalize you if you stepped across a certain line. In my book, it was really interesting because what I found was two contested versions of the story. On the one hand, in the written record, uh, Willie James Howard had written a, a love note to this white girl, Cynthia Goff, and was, was flirting with her. But almost every African-American that I interviewed um, rejected that interpretation of what had happened in the winter of 1943. They said that what Willie James had done um, was was he was singing a song. He was renowned among his classmates for having a wonderful singing voice that the white girl overheard him singing a song, asked him to write down the lyrics, and it was these lyrics that her father found. And, and, And what's the difference between the two stories? 
on the one hand, you have a black boy, a teenage black boy, who surely from the time that he had any understanding was groomed to not cross a certain line when it came to white girls. Um, you have him now in the black community being rescued and, and he's no longer a foolish boy who did something that he probably shouldn't have done. He is instead uh, a victim of a misunderstanding. His innocence is maintained. Um, and I think for the, for the black survivors in that community, that was something that they, they have hung on to and protected uh, you know, fiercely uh, in their understanding of what happened to, to Willie James Howard. And so I, I think we have, when we talk about lynching narratives and how communities remember lynching, we must understand that it too had a, a, de- a defensive role and um, psych- in some ways psychologically protecting the community from the brutality that existed around them and in whatever small ways that they could. And, and yeah, I, I know that story all too well. Even I was, uh, I was, uh, leaving a family, uh, get together in Charlotte, North Carolina and going to, to the coastline, uh, after a, a cousin's, uh, a graduation party. And we picked up one of our other cousins who was, who was back in the country, um, on our way to take him back home. And I remember, I'll never forget him saying, Hey bro, hey, don't you be looking at the white girls out there in McDonald's, bro. And I'm like, I'm like, I think I was like 14 or 15 or something like that. And this is in, that would have been like 2007. Um, and so, you know, those kinds of stories as a as a black dude growing up in the South and and yeah, yeah, everybody, Florida is a part of the South. Don't let it don't get it twisted. If anything over the past 50 plus minutes has shown you that Florida is a part of that solid South, don't get it twisted. Like someone I met from South Florida who was like, no, Florida is not a part of the South. Slavery and all that stuff. It, <clears throat> what? Yes, it actually did. Um, And so, you know, and going a little bit uh, from that point, too, um, I remember I taught a class or I I taught one day in a a high school class up in Boston um, at uh, the Snowden International uh, School um, in Boston. And uh, I taught students about Ida B. Wells and I also taught them about the history of uh, Strange Fruit. Um, the actual song that uh, that Billie Holiday made famous um, that I, you know, I showed him the Nina Simone version. I showed him the uh, Billie Holiday version to kind of see the emotion of how both songs, you know, uh, you know, you have the you have the transcript, but you have the words. But then you also have the actual, you know, way that each singer um, portrayed the song. Um, and, and I bring that up because. You know, even though Kanye West, that gum Kanye, uh, most unfortunately, most of the kids knew the the song because of his uh, "Blood on the Leaves" uh, sample that he, or the the Strange Fruit sample that he used for "Blood on the Leaves" and his, I think it was 2013 album "Jesus." But "Strange Fruit" is a, is a song that uh, the name that you use for your epilogue. You know, the echoes of lynching violence, um, and and I definitely thought that that was one of the more poignant. Um, areas of your book. Um, so in the in the last bit of time that we have with you today, um, would you be able to, to, to get into a bit of your epilogue and uh, sprinkle in a little bit of your conclusion too, um, you know, to, to, to water the beaks of our of our listeners so that they can go buy this uh, buy this book? 
Yes. Um, I, I talked about the epilogue a little bit before. One of the things that I was struggling with as I concluded the, the main body of the work is um, what I had learned in my research about the fate of these families, particularly the women in those families. And so the story of what happened to Black women in the aftermath of lynching, I know uh, Kadada Williams has done quite a bit on that as well. But I think that there's a lot more room for that perspective um, and when we look at stories of, of lynching, more broadly, and um, we haven't talked much about this, and while I, I do write these chapters and there is an implicit focus on, on expanding what we know and, and doing a more th- thorough retelling on the lynching incidents themselves, what I've tried to do is weave a thread of uh, both national and international politics as to uh, what's happening um, on the world stage. And of course, this is the era of World War II uh, in the administration of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. They're uh, attempting to mobilize and then eventually engaged in fighting uh, this war for democracy, this war uh, against the the Axis powers. And what his State Department is is letting him know is that internationally, uh, especially as we get towards the end of the war, especially as tensions with um, the USSR and the Soviet Union become uh, more tense and, and they're anticipating a battle writ large around the globe about um, uh, global supremacy, the State Department is making FDR aware that internationally, America's race relations, poor race relations, it's an inability to fully live up to its claims and where it came to African-Americans was its Achilles heel. And so what you have uh, slowly over this decade, over the, really just the early years of, of the, the 19, decade of the 1940s, is an administration under Franklin Roosevelt that is pivoting towards, while not uh, actively trying to tamp down, I would say, on lynchings, they're at least posturing to let Southern uh, jurisdictions know that they were no longer willing to turn a blind eye to, to lynching justice. This came after the 1942 lynching of uh, Cleo Wright in Sykeston, Missouri, which uh, was, was really horrible. He's burned to death in front of a church on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, FDR orders his Justice Department to investigate every lynching claim that, that they come across. And, and that, while it seems relatively minor, perhaps by our lens today, was a huge step. And, and I argue what you see as I mentioned uh, earlier, in the secrecy and the decrease in size and the uh, and the careful planning and execution of the lynchings that I write about, I think you have uh, in Florida uh, an understanding that there is more pressure, uh, that there is more likelihood that they would be brought to justice. And, and a couple of these lynchings, in particular the 1945 lynching of Jesse James Payne, gets a lot of national attention. Uh, There are campaigns by national labor unions, petitions being sent to the Justice Department, to the president um, that are drawing attention to um, what happened. So uh, that's those are the threads that I try to to bring together. Um, I I also have to shout out to the black press. Um, They make great rhetorical use of what is happening. There's this distance between what the United States uh, says 
um, and acting abroad and its failure to deliver democracy for Black people at home. Um, you have some prolific writers and publications like the Pittsburgh Courier, the Chicago Defender, and others that are driving this message, message home and using these wartime lynchings as an argument for a deeper commitment on the part of the United States government to full civil rights and justice for Black people. So it's a lot. It's a lot to try to not just make this a Florida story, but to also talk about the national and international implications of it. And like like you were saying, try, trying to internationalize this, the story here is, um, is very important because when you think about... Um, you know, the, 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 those in power, the governors and, and those in the state, you know, they, they saw this as, you know, not only an issue, but something that would either help them or hurt them in in elections. Um, And one of the people that made, try to make this occur, you know, is, you know, someone who was trying to get justice on behalf of folks was the NAACP's uh, Harry T. Uh, Moore and um, his wife, who's uh, 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 Harriet of uh, V. Moore. And so, um, you know, would you be able to briefly give us a, a bit about uh, their um, involvement in um, trying to bring justice uh, to, 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 to not only the, the lynch, but also to the families as well? And also, unfortunately, what happens to him? Yes. Um, I, in that, I was hoping that there would be time. I thought we were running out. Um, because in that last little bit, uh, his name came to my mind. Um, Harry T. Moore is perhaps one of my favorite figures in all of Florida history, um, not just because he's a homeboy. He was uh, born and raised in Swanee County, uh, where I'm from, not just because he uh, was educated at an institution that I formerly worked for, Florida Memorial College, um, when it was in Live Oak, but um, just his tenacity And all of the work that he did um, from education to fighting for the equalization of teacher pay to uh, fighting for registering blacks to vote. Um, But I I really focus on in my work his role as an anti-lynching advocate. He is the head of the state conference of the NAACP. And we see him um, during each of these occasions um, taking up the mantle. Uh, and trying to draw attention, um, attention of elected officials in the state of Florida, uh, the law enforcement officials, uh, the Department of Justice, uh, to get them to come and investigate what's happening. Um, and he particularly took to heart the lynching of Willie James Howard in Live Oak. He had been a classmate of Lula Howard, who was the um, mother of Willie James Howard, and um, really tried to advocate uh, for this family. He um, helped them to relocate from Live Oak to Orlando in the days after their son's murder. He found them support. He uh, took affidavits from James Howard um, that would fly in the face of the forced uh, uh, forced uh, affidavit he'd been um uh, Signed, he was coerced into signing before he left Live Oak. So, uh, Harry T. Moore is just a phenomenal individual, and and not just his activism uh, during these lynchings, but when we look at him and his involvement in the Groveland Four, another group of African American men who are falsely accused of rape. Um, it's going to be all you know the culmination of that story uh, because of all of his advocacy. He's going to be targeted for assassination by the KKK who detonate a bomb underneath his bedroom on December the 25th, 1951. 
And, and um, I think that's really the ultimate tragedy of his story is that he worked so hard for civil rights, voting rights and anti-lynching here in the state of Florida. Uh, and he paid for it with his life, but was fully aware and fully committed of the threat against him and what that might mean. So he's, he's one of my favorite personalities and heroes in, in Florida history. And, and he, you know, I, that actually happened, I believe in Mims, Florida. Uh, and that was, yeah, Brevard County, right? I grew up in Orange County. And so, you know, on, in, in the Winter Park area, so on the other side of where uh, Groveland is in the in the general area, but whenever I'm going down to Palm Beach to go to where I was born to see family, always got, I was, you know, driving somewhere near Mims. And when I heard about that story as, as, uh, as a teenager, I was like, that makes sense because you have areas like Christmas, Florida, Biffalo, you know, very different areas that are still within Orange County, a place that's perceived to be somewhat cosmopolitan. It's, you know, it's, it's not, you know, it's not the areas at which your your story goes to, which is more so in the Panhandle and North Central Florida. Uh, but a lot of those people who lived in those areas, you know, moved down there as well as the economy started to boom around the time of the 1950s, 1960s. Um, but overall, this story is not only a story of those particular communities, but it's a Florida story in general, um, in the sense of if we ain't all free, nobody should should ever feel free. Because if somebody feels that they are lacking in freedom, we should feel like that is an infringement upon us. But largely, you know, the the, the story of the American individual is you know, put against that collectivized narrative um, of, of collective struggle. And so the story of, uh, of Harry T. Moore and, and his wife and the other folks within the NAACP and the state and also nationally, they had to shine a light on, on this to be able to shame America into recognizing that you may be trying to bring democracy abroad, but there's lynching at home that's happening. Yeah, I think it was exactly their point. And um, you see uh, it's interesting connection, too, because what you see after the end of World War II with the creation of the United Nations, you're going to see uh, an organized movement to, uh, to petition the United Nations on behalf of African-Americans. Uh, the We Claim Genocide uh, petition that was put forward and a, and a huge part of that. Uh, in terms of the litany of allegations against the United States government, they point to the uh, assassinations of Harry T. Moore and Harriet Moore, who were both killed in the bombing that we mentioned before. So, um, you know, my work falls kind of, you know, in between uh, uh, kind of local histories on lynching in Florida. Um, I studied Carol Anderson's work on uh, international uh, civil rights. Um, I think about Mary Dudziak's work, Cold War Civil Rights. Uh, I, my my timeline comes a little bit before that, but some of the trends that they point to about the intersection of um, Black civil rights and the uh, communist struggle 
um, you can begin to see some of those threads coming out of the 1940s uh, in the black press and particularly in the in the language around what's happening to the lynching victims that I write about. So um, it's a lot of really important context there. Absolutely. Um, and so with this story in this book, um, you know, it's pr- profound and definitely something that um, I'm proud of the University Press of Florida for 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 publishing and for you, obviously, to write. Um, is there what 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 is uh, I guess now that you know this project is, is done, what what's what's next? Uh, if you don't mind uh, telling us in the, in the last couple of minutes that we have you about um, the projects, because I, I know you, uh, you, you you're you're getting settled in in, in uh, North or I guess a. Uh, I was going to say North Florida being in Valdosta, but we ain't going to just spread the state of Georgia like that. I, I want, I don't want my listeners to from Georgia to, 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 to feel disrespected. So, um, uh, in South Georgia, um, what, um, I know you're, you're moving to Valdosta and, or, and or in the process, but, um, what can we look forward to, uh, next for, for you, Dr. Hobbs was, you know, um, we definitely uh, want to have you back on the program uh, when, whenever that particular project potentially uh, comes into comes into our hands. We definitely want to bring you back. Sure, um, and 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 understand that I'm, I'm I'm a border jumper, so I'm having trouble keeping <laughs> keeping that straight too. I consider the North Florida and South Georgia uh, area to be a, a, a region. There's, there's not a whole lot of uh, difference, I think. But um, being in a region has been good for me. I am embarking on a project that's going to take me uh, back to Gaston County. Um, I am interested in working on the story of the Quincy Five. There were five African American. Um, men who were falsely accused of murder uh, in 1970, 1971. Uh, one of those men, uh, David Keaton, becomes the first death row exoneree. And I'm uh, working with um, a civil rights attorney, uh, Kent Spriggs, who represented uh, David Charles, who was one of the uh, accused, and, in order to bring that story to life. And, and for me, it, it makes sense because, number one, I'm familiar with the, the area. But most importantly, when we talk about the decline of extralegal murder that we call lynching, at the same time, what you see is an increase of not only legal lynching, as we mentioned in the case of Sellis Harrison, but also uh, capital punishment, the rates of Black men being sentenced to death row. Uh, just increases astronomically. And so there, there's a common thread that I'm eager to follow and uh, working on the story is going to help uh, illuminate that. So I'm at the beginning of a, of a long road to help get that story told, but I'm very excited about it. Awesome. Awesome. And so, um, once again, uh, we're very much excited to have had you on the program. Uh, shouts out to, you know, Tallahassee. Shouts out to Florida A&M University. You know, you know, as we like to say, we brag different. Shouts out to the Bragg Stadium. Um, you know, you know, you know. Um, and so once again, folks, we have had, um, let me get this right. But I got it wrong before. The associate professor of history and coordinator of the African American Studies Department at, at the Valdosta State University in Valdosta, Georgia, Dr. Tamika Bradley Hobbs. Um, 
we, we've had a tremendous time with you, you know, bringing the stories uh, of, of the families and the herring examples of, uh, of, you know, the unfortunate nature of lynching, but also the resolve that people had to push through and, and just try to live. Um, and so once again, we've had Dr. Tamika Bradley Hobbs representing Valdosta State uh, University with her uh, book published through the University Press of Florida, Democracy Abroad, Lynching at Home, ra- uh, ra- excuse me, Racial Violence in Florida. And once again, we hope to have you back on the program. And so in closing, once again, folks, New Books Network's African-American Studies channel. I am your host, Adam McNeil. PhD student in history in the Department of History at the University of Delaware. Until next time, folks.